The sound is good enough? Okay. You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you, people, the gentleman on my show today is not only a legendary musician, but he's an actor, which I have to talk to him about because he's worked in a lot of stuff. He's a writer, he's a poet. He has a new album coming out called Fables in a Foreign Land, and it's John Doe. How you doing, John? I'm doing good, Steve. So so you said you have a few shows coming up. Are you excited? Are you feeling good? Because, you know, we went to a shutdown and everything. What's going on in your mind when you get these shows coming up? <laughs> uh, well, we have our COVID bubble, and and um, I am sure I'm excited. I, I You know, I like playing. I'm fortunate in that way, but... Um, I've got a lot of friends who have been touring and then canceling and touring and canceling. And, and so it's, uh, it, it's with a mixed, <laughs> a little bit mixed about it. Getting on an airplane is okay. Um, it's, it's just, uh, you know, getting back in the saddle, so to speak, and um, hoping for the best. I mean, yeah, I'm going to be excited to play. We, we played a few shows. We did a, you know, a, December run like we do on the West Coast and then the last two shows somebody po tested positive and then it all you know we had to cancel the last show and then I had to drive home from Orange County to, to or from San Diego to Austin that was fun with aches and pains because I also got it and that's you know everybody being vaccinated and boosted and all that shit so yeah it's cool it's great it's you know people there's, there's still a lot of pent up like appreciation for you know getting in a room together and playing and listening to music i've i've been to a few shows and it's funny i've go to the place outside philly and people are still wearing masks i'm fine with that and then once, once you're once you're watching a show and a song you don't notice i mean because we're not yeah. singing you know we're not yeah. you know but um it's just been amazing i've been to like five concerts in the last six weeks and it's just amazing the energy people have i mean everyone loves live music but it just seems and, you know, the crowds I go to are my age. I'm 58. So it's not like, you know, 25-year-old kids go great. It's 55, 60 people, 60-year-olds just going nuts. And, and, it, and it's great because it's a testament to musicians like you that how much people love live music and how much they miss it. Turns out it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out people like it, and it's fun. <laughs> and it makes you young. I mean, I'm 115 years old. And you, look, you look great. You look pretty good. Yeah, I know. So tell me about the new album. Tell me about the new album because uh, it's, it's Fables in Foreign, uh, Foreign Land. You have a few videos for it. It comes out, I believe, yep. May 20th. Tell me, yep. did, was, it, was it a COVID project? Was it a project you started before? Or tell me the whole background and how you got your band together for this and everything. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, well, I'll try to break it down into some bite-sized pieces so it's not just blah, blah, blah. Um... I had an idea to do a quote folk trio about seven or eight years ago, and it, and I never could really find the right players, um, even though it was good, and it was a little a little had a little more space, a little simpler, but it was in April of 2020 that I called up Kevin Smith, who plays bass with Willie Nelson as his main gig, and. At that point, Willie was doing two weeks on, two weeks off. So I always had to, you know, try to find time to play with Kevin. We also had played with uh, this drummer, Conrad Chacroon, who had played in the Damnations and NRBQ and was currently playing with uh, Patty Griffin. So he also was touring and being busy. And then everybody was doing jack shit. And so... Um, I called up Kevin and said, can I come over to your back porch? He goes, yeah, it'll be outside. Uh, it's like a patio kind of thing. And um, so we did that and realized that we hadn't been doing, just playing for the hell of it, which is sad. You know, you're always playing as if you're a professional musician. You're always playing, you're always getting together to do a tour or to make a recording or learn some songs or whatever. And, um, then we called Conrad, and Conrad was thrilled. And, and over the next like year and a half, we I would write songs and we'd learn them and we'd 
play cover songs and we just you know fuck around and through that i give kevin and conrad a lot of credit to really developing the sound because conrad even though he's very quick and inventive in what he plays on drums he also play can play quietly so we just sang and played into the air kevin's playing upright bass i'm playing acoustic guitar you know we could do it around a campfire or in the back of some pub you know so uh when we came to recording we did the same thing we're in a fancy studio owned and run by uh jim eno from spoon and um we're just singing and playing into the air we aren't using headphones and it's all fucking live and you just gotta be good and um it, it wasn't all one each each song wasn't just one take we could cut between takes because conrad's got really good time but uh yeah and it, it also fit with the theme of the of the songs now, why did you choose, you said you had the idea seven or eight years ago about the folk trio. Where did that come from? Was that just something you had just popped in your mind or you've been thinking about it, but you wanted to be serious about it seven or eight years ago? Where did that come from? Uh, well, I'm of a certain age. Uh, I'm, I'm a good 10 years older than you are, young man. So you better be respectful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, kids were given folk music. That was our thing. You know, parents gave your gave kids these little ten inch records, but they, maybe they realized it, maybe they didn't. But it was like Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie and all these, you know, no goodniks and you know beatniks and socialists and murderers, and they're talking about the devil and getting drunk and you know the Big Rock Candy Mountain and and stuff like that. <clears throat> so that was like <clears throat> deep in my um, DNA. And I kind of got tired of, of uh, you know, some lead guitar players are wonderful and they're very talented, but some play too much, like all the time. <laughs> and I got tired of it. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I wanted to just like serve the song rather than, you know, have a platform for fucking noodling. And I, I, I always hated jamming. I, <laughs> I just was talking to a bass player because Kevin, uh, on this upcoming tour, can't make it because Willie's got these makeup dates and stuff. And I'm talking to this other bass player who used to play with Dale Watson. And I said, and by the way, we don't jam because I can't and I hate it. <laughs> so and he goes, oh, thank God. Me too. You know, what do, why do you jamming, hate jamming? Why do you hate jamming so much? Because jamming for a bass player sucks. <laughs> if you're a bass player... You find a pattern and you kind of play that unless you're, you know, Jack Bruce and, and that also kind of, you know, or, or some, you know, crazy bass player and you want to play a bunch of licks. And I, you know, I'm from the Jamie Jamerson, Rick Danko, Willie Dixon school of bass playing. You know, I just love putting down a good bottom, having some melody in there. Um, but the other thing with this trio, this folk trio does is it allows the drums and bass to be more melodic. They can they can tape a, take up a little more space. They can be a little a little looser and and go outside a little bit more. Um, and I'll also cop to the the fact that it was inspired by um, that Dylan record, John Wesley Harding, because that's also very simple and um, direct and sounds live. And it was. I mean, I, I know that for a fact. There, there wasn't overdubs and stuff on that. So, um, yeah, it serves the song. And, and it just gives you a feeling, takes you to a place so you can just go roam around in that world that you create. Now, how did you formulate the album? And, and that I mean, I, we come from a time where albums were king. You know, I always talk to my yeah. friends how you drive, your, I drive my bike to get an album and you examine it and you look at it and you go oh good it's got the lyrics and it's got the and you get home and you get it should be your paperboy money and if the album sucked you'd be all pissed off because you're like there's two good songs i heard on the radio how how did you come about putting the album together because there are so many of us who who value that but then we have a bunch of newer people who don't really get into the whole album concept yeah um it just 
that there were two or three songs that uh, that were the, the beginning of this record. And then I think when I wrote uh, Never Coming Back, which is the, t the first song, um, I thought, oh, this this could this could be a concept record. And it's a concept record that's not premeditated or or, um, you know, uh, just a, a, a thought. It's more of a feeling. And um, so I said it in the 1890s and there were no modern things, uh, no telephones and, and no automobiles. And, and um, uh, that's how I went about it. Just just being a little more disciplined and the and the idea of an album uh, there is there there is material that you can find on this that, that comes with the you know download and the you know we're, we made a couple different you know special editions and I mean Fat Possum which put out the X records as well were very generous and and they're so good because their measure of what should we do to promote a record is what's cool. <laughs> and that's it. It's not like what's going to drive sales or what's going to, I mean, they, they do pay attention to that stuff and they pay attention to streaming and all that kind of business. But it's like, if you're going to do an extra thing, you know, for a, for a bonus, you know, that you can pay a little bit more for, they just say, well, what's going to be cool. And if you do that, then you won't be disappointed. Then, then you're like, Oh yeah, that was kind of a sellout. Then you're not going to say that because you know that it was fucking cool to start with. So, um, yeah. now, now, how did you decide the 1890s? I mean, it's I mean, as a writer, I you know you've, you've written so many different songs over the years and music styles. Yeah, I mean, that's just to me, it's very obscure. Like it's a time where all of a sudden you're sitting there going, <laughs> oh, no, "Holy no, shit, I'm going to I'm going to write about the 1890s." How, how did it, how did it come about? Uh, I think like a lot of people, um, I'm I'm really burned out and and sick of like learning curves like i don't need to learn how to operate another motherfucking phone i you know and and even you know even like my kids are like god oh, jesus i think i've got to get another computer and they and you realize that there's all this bullshit you've got to figure out you know even even doing like uh interviews nowadays <laughs> it's like you can't just call me on the phone. We got a Zoom call and then, oh, but there's going to be some other, we want you to record it this way. So I think that was part of it. And also, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it. There's a lot of fiction that I've read and, and um, I, I love the idea of things being elemental. Like if you don't, you know, go get your food you're going to starve if you don't fix the roof you're going to you know be homeless and and it, actually my daughter pointed out to me after i sent her the record she goes god dad there's a lot of loneliness and isolation here that's just like what we've been going through for the last year and a half and i was like huh oh you're really smart i didn't think about that but you're right i mean it was just happening so uh like I say, there were there were two two or three songs. Like Missouri was an early one, which is you know starts out um, was inspired by seeing the Mississippi the Missouri River flood. We were driving through um, from Kansas City to Omaha, and there was like tens of thousands of acres that were under a couple of feet of water, and it was so crazy because I hadn't even heard it on the news, but it was like completely ice de desolate. And then uh, that song, Cowboy in the Hot Air Balloon, which just sort of came as a story. And, and then I, I thought, well, these are all this weird time. So let's just go for it and, you know, try to be disciplined enough to, to keep it focused. Now tell me about the videos. You know, I know the, you can, on your website you can find Never Coming Back and is it El Romanzo. How did you choose them and, and how did you choose your... your um tempo for the video because you know the one actually the one when the one guy looks like an actor i know the alejandro patino has like is that alejandro I'm like no it's too thin it's too thin for him but how did you uh how did you um pick those two songs and what was your whole were you behind a conceptual of the video yeah, yeah. um well the el, el romanzo was um 
was done by this guy Gilbert Trejo. And Gilbert's, uh, he and I worked on, on a project oh, about four or five years ago, and uh, which never really got off the ground, but I, you know, I know that he's a good uh, filmmaker. And um, he actually has also done several other videos. Most recently, he did a, a video for this band, Starcrawler. And um, he did a, an X video. He did the video for Alphabet Land for the X record. He's just really talented and creative. And you can just talk to him about the most sort of outside and, and oddball things, and he'll get it. You know, the, the whole thing in that with the, you know, the protege and the and the mentor, you know, and then the protege sort of becomes the mentor and the mentor, you know, goes off. But they're all like lying. They're all pretending to, to be something that they're not. Um, and then uh, so Gilbert's just super talented. And, and I knew that I could just say a bunch of crazy ideas and he'd get it. And then he came out and filmed us for a day. Uh, out in uh, near where Kevin Smith lives and out in Dripping Springs and uh, and the the one before that never coming back um, I just had this idea that it should be uh, just a feeling like a like it's a dream and uh, there's a, a woman uh, Brandeis um, Daneswitch who who uh, I've, I've met she's a photographer she does some uh, like fashion photography but she, she uh, for her personal stuff, she has this really treated, dark, weird stuff. She's on the Instagram as an anti-model, if anybody wants to check her out. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> we agreed to, <clears throat> to do this thing. I, I filmed it with the, the guy, Todd V. Wolfson, who, um, who did the photos for the LP. And um, we had this kind of film noir lighting for, for the... The, you know me lip syncing and then Brandeis just put it together with all this all these textures and uh, overlay stuff so that it it felt like it was kind of springing from someone's subconscious or something now also I saw there's a poem involved there's a poem in the uh, record I got some stuff from mm -hmm. your PR people now that's a poem by you do you write a lot of poetry yeah. or, or I mean when I mean has it always been a thing you've done well uh, yes yeah, I mean, I kind of went to school for it. Uh, I went to <laughs> to the the weirdest branch of Antioch College in Baltimore uh, from like seventy four and yeah, nineteen seventy four and seventy five, and it was all they were all night classes, <laughs> and the other the other students it was on top of it was the second floor of a of like a two story insurance building, <laughs> and all the other people that went to classes there were like domestic help because they because at that point you could get like financial government financial um, assistance so there were all these you know black women that were you know cleaning people's houses in the daytime and at night they were going to school to to become like political activists and, <laughs> and accountants and and you know there was a lot of like black history uh, taught there but they had a writing program. Um, and then I just reconnected with a bunch of people and I do like a, a poetry workshop on Zoom once a month. So you gotta write a, a poem once a month. And the one that's on the back was just sort of a synopsis. It, it was kind of like, a, um, if you read this, then you might be interested in what the record, because it's kind of like a you know, condensed version, a summary of, of what happens on the record. Now, you've had a very long career. When when did you start loving music? When did you start playing? I mean, and it's like you talked about bass. And what made you pick up the bass? Because the bass is easier than the guitar. <laughs> There's only four strings. And anybody who has a bass that has five strings and six strings, thumbs down. <laughs> maybe maybe if you play with Chardet, you can have like a five-string bass. But you can't have it just like you can't have it up here, like by your neck. You can't have the bass like within six inches of your neck. These are these are rules that you know, Steve. And and if you don't, you know, play by some, you don't have some parameters, some boundaries. You know, 
bad shit can happen. And we've all seen it. We've all seen those parachute pants. We've all seen that base like eight inches above the belt. No bueno. Can't have it. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? My first love of music was folk music when I was a kid. And my, my parents, all they just listened to classical music and opera and shit like that. <clears throat> but they also had show tunes. So Bye Bye Birdie and West Side Story and South Pacific and the Pajama Game and stuff like that. I, I met Bonnie Raitt one time in uh, San Francisco, probably in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And I said, oh, my God, I am the biggest fan of your dad. Because John Raitt was like Broadway king. You know, he, he was in the pajama game and, uh, I don't know, a bunch of Annie Get Your Gun and stuff like that. And she was like, who the hell are you, punk rock dude, saying you like my dad, the Broadway star? And then I started playing music when I was probably in <clears throat> fifth grade. <clears throat> uh when the animals were my favorite band and, and, uh, you know, I, yeah. Then I, I really started getting, I started playing bass when I was about 15. Uh, when, you know, Janis Joplin and the doors and Jimi Hendrix and all that psychedelic stuff was happening. So what made you decide to move out to LA? You know, I believe you're in Baltimore. I mean, you're going to miss the crabs. Yeah. You got to get the blue crabs, you know, you're going to miss the rockfish. Oh. You gotta, you gotta get rid of that. But what made you sit yeah. there and decide? Because I know I was, I was thirty when I left North Jersey. I was doing comedy, and I lived in North Jersey. And I was thirty. I moved out west, and it was yeah. I was a little older. But you, what made you decide to make that move? Because once again, it was easier when I did it. Now it's easier because you can get a lot, an apartment online. But back then, you had to just yeah. go out and show up and go. Hey, does anyone know anyone that I can rent a place? What made you right. decide to I, move? Actually, I, I, I knew nobody from Baltimore and um, my parents lived in Brooklyn so in um, like 74 75 I would go up there and spend the weekend I go to CBGB's and Max's Kansas City and I saw the talking heads at CBGB's and I saw the heartbreakers at Max's and it was great but there were all these flyers everywhere and you could just tell that the New York scene was pretty locked down you know it was already you know happening and um like i said i was just sick of the east coast i mean and it was hard you know there's a lot of negativity and and i i don't i, I think it keeps people honest <clears throat> puts iron in their spine and and like that but i i was looking for something that was a little bit more like you can do whatever you want you can you know because the times were ready for that you know obviously i had you know all of david bowie's records i had patty smith's horses and it's like shit's going down man i want to i want to be there i want to be somewhere and there were a bunch of other misfits in la so i think it was fateful that both Xene and i moved to la within six months of each other and and uh, we met at a, a writing workshop the this poetry workshop uh, at beyond baroque in Venice, California, and that was, uh, you know, that's still going on. They still have uh, weekly workshops. Now, how did X come about to be? I mean, were you were you kicking around any bands before then? Or were you checking out the scene? Was there even a scene in L.A., you know, a punk scene? I mean, what was it like when you were getting out there and trying to get started somewhat? There was, a, um, there was like a pre-punk scene, and there was uh, a few bands that, that were putting on shows on their own and that was the motels and a band called the pop and i think there was a band called the dogs but i might have just made that up uh and then like 75 i moved out there the end of 76 so i would say the, the those other bands i just mentioned they were doing stuff in like 74 75 <clears throat> and the there the tubes were happening up in san francisco um, but when I moved there, the, the screamers and weirdos were just getting started. And, um, this guy, Brendan Mullen had rented a basement in the bottom of the pussycat theater, which is a porno theater on Hollywood Boulevard. So there was like, 
you know, it was, it was, it was starting to happen because, you know, I mean, Ramones and CBGBs have been going on since like beginning of 75 into 74. So in cream magazine and, you know, other fanzines, you know, like punk was a, another fanzine that was starting to get around. And so it was, it was starting to happen. And, and you just met people, you know, you're just walking around Hollywood Boulevard to see somebody who looked weird and you, you knew, you know, um, but the mask was where Brendan rented this basement. The mask was starting to have shows uh, at the end of 76. And um, just word got out. You, you know, you put an, I put an ad in this uh, paper called The Recycler where you could, you know, buy a refrigerator or get a free cat or, you know, or a lead singer, you know, <laughs> or an apartment. Or, you know, a starter for a 1964 Falcon. You know, you could get fucking anything. And there were a lot of, uh, you know, musician-wanted ads. And Billy, Billy Zoom and I put a similarly worded ad in the same week and met each other. And I had just met Exene. <clears throat> she had no real intention in being a musician and being a singer. But I could tell that she... She, you know, she she wrote the song "I'm Coming Over," and um, and I said, "Do you mind if I put music to this?" And I did, and then I asked her if I could play it in my band, and she said, "Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you want the song? You got to take me too." And, and she's later said, "You know, this was one of the only things that I knew had some intrinsic value, and I'm not going to just let somebody else do it." Um, and, and that was, I I could, you know, I I knew that Exene was uh, a lead singer at heart because she had, you know, she had a, a parts of her childhood were tough and she lost her mom when she was, uh, you know, a, teen, a young teenager. And, you know, she just had that, that fire and pain. And, you know, she's, she's done a lot of work to, to get through that, you know? And, and I think, creativity is uh, one of the big things that, that helps you with that so that's how X got started we, and then we stole DJ Bonebreak from a band called The Eyes that were sort of breaking up and Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's was, was in The Eyes as well now how do you go about getting a, a record deal back then I mean and your first like your, and like your first gig you know how many songs did you have prepared I mean I wanted because it always interests me because everyone says like when I okay as when I did stand up comedy first time I ever got on stage I didn't do five yeah. minutes I was terrified and I, and I went up and I did five minutes and I did great and I was like I'm the king and then I next week I came yeah. back I ate shit I didn't show up for two months <laughs> just the way it was for you what was it what was the process of you getting the set and then getting it the record out I mean it wasn't like oh, everyone was doing yeah, we didn't that. have a yeah we didn't have a set we played we played in the living room of a of a house that we were that billy was moving out of and um it was in the wilshire district and it was this old kind of uh 1920s victorian almost uh style house and we played in the living room and um actually kk barrett who was uh, who's now a pretty famous production designer for movies and stuff played drums for us. He was also the drummer in the screamers. I think we played six songs. We played whatever we could, you know, whatever we could figure out and, uh, getting a record deal. I mean, the first record we put out was on danger house and that was just black Randy and David Braun from, uh, from the screamers and black Randy put out his records on danger house and, you know, it was just to do something. We knew that we weren't going to make any money, but we were going to have something out. And then eventually we, you know, Slash Records or Slash Magazine, Bob Biggs came in and wanted to make a, a record company with that. And they put out a single by The Germs and and then maybe The Weirdos. And um, I can't remember. I, I guess maybe they put out The Germs LP before they put out Los Angeles. But it did really well, you know, especially for that for that point in time and that kind of music. Um, they had a lot of a lot of problems with distribution. There was no indie record distribution network set up then. So, you know, you just did what you what you did. But there were some people like the plugs and the weirdos and 
and uh, the alley cats that were really trying to, to do what we all thought was possible, which is to get into the actual system, you know, the, the, the old guard of music. And the major labels didn't want to have any fucking thing to do with us. It was like, we like it just like it is. You youngsters just, I don't know, we don't get it. You know, fuck you guys, we, you know, go away. <clears throat> I mean, even the Go-Go's couldn't get signed. It's like, are, how stupid are you? There's like a five adorable women who play pop music and you're too proud and you don't have enough vision to see that. I mean, it was Miles Copeland and IRS, and IRS wasn't really a big deal either. Had a number one motherfucking record. You know, so it was hard. Now, what was it like when you started getting that momentum, though? Like, you you, you were the forefront of the scene, and then everyone's everyone's yeah. getting it now. And then all of a sudden, you know, and then, of course, people always go, oh, they're an overnight success. You know, that's all the bullshit they always say. What, what was it like when, when you just started getting it? Was it like a fuck you guys, I told you? Or was it just like, we're just going to ride it? Oh, I, I think everybody feels feels like you you want to be able to say I told you so. Right. That's a, that's a very that's a very attractive uh, you know feeling. Um, it was confusing. It was really fucking confusing because there was a first wave of L.A. punk rock, which were you know we kind of dealt with in those those books, the the Under the Big Black Sun and More Fun in the New World. And those were each five-year chunks. And, and um, you know, the first two or three years from, say, 77 to, uh, or 76 to 79, it was very inclusive, and there was all different kinds, and, you know, like gay, straight, black, white. I mean, it was primarily white, you know, suburban city kids, runaways and stuff like that. But it was very inclusive. If you wanted to suffer all of the abuse that you got for being a punk rocker what the hell i mean if you were black or gay or you know <laughs> gender fluid fucking come in man we need all the people we can get so um but then i would say you know 79 80 it became more hardcore and it became a little bit bigger the scene started to to fracture and there was a lot more testosterone and it was a little less inclusive and I don't know it got harder and faster and so that was that was hard you know because then you know oh you signed a slash record you sold out and it's like wait a minute hold on hold <laughs> on it's slash records motherfucker <laughs> but we would try to go see fear or the circle jerks and there'd be, you know, and Xene and I would be, oh, all of 26 years old. And there'd be some dipshit 18-year-old, you know, flipping us off and spitting, you know, trying to spit on us and stuff like that. And I'm not going to take that. So then, then what? Then you can't go see your friend's band play because someone's being, you know, more self-righteous or holier okay, cool, you guys go have fun. I'm going to go see uh, The Blasters and Los Lobos. Now, what made you cool. decide to write those books? I know you, there's two of them. Was that just something that was in your mind? And it's great that you brought other people in. Yeah. What, made, what, was, what was that? Where'd that come well, from? I, I, it was my, uh, my partner, who's way smarter than me, and she kept uh, badgering me to, to write a book, and it sounded like way too much work <laughs> to me. It's like, what the fuck? What, I got to do this too? No, I don't want to do, oh, God. And then Tom DeSavia, who's a good pal of mine, he's been in publishing and the record business for a long time. And, and he kept saying, oh, well, you should write a book. And I said, well, why don't you help me write it? And then one of us had the good idea to get other people to, to write with us so we could be more inclusive. You know, it was all about community, especially that first book. And, and the second one. I mean, the, the L.A. scene was all about community because we knew we couldn't do it individually. So we got a chance to have <clears throat> different voices, you know, from the 
the perspective of a woman in punk rock, from the perspective of a Latino in punk rock, and or someone who's a roots musician like Dave Alvin or Louis Perez, you know, what it was like for them. And um, it just kind of, to, you know, get a fuller picture of, of what that history was. And I'm proud of them. I'm proud that we actually got them published and they did pretty well and, and a fuller picture of, of what the L.A. scene was like. Now, how did the decline of Western civilization come about? And did that impact your career at all? I'm sure now when people can stream it, they probably go back and examine your music. People who didn't know, because yeah. now with Netflix, you can find stuff. But how did that how did that come about? And, and you guys had longer than most people in that movie. You had a, you had a nice little segment. Uh, you know, um, Penelope Spiris had just... What has she done? Uh, she was the director. <clears throat> and she was, uh, at the time, she was married to Bob Biggs, who was the head of Slash Records. And I think she had, oh, God, I can't remember what she had. She had done some, like, one or two other movies, documentary. And she just felt like she wanted to tell that story. And we were kind of pissed off because they hadn't gotten that earliest part of the scene with the plugs and alley cats and weirdos and screamers and things like that which was way more positive than what the decline of western civilization movie was but what penelope captured in that was that transition between one scene and the next scene and, and it was you know the kids were a little more nihilistic and and um you know like latchkey uh kind of kind of kids so she just kept approaching bands and, and she did have to make it she did make it a little more sensational because I think that was the movie that she had to make in order to get it out there. Now what was it like when you guys when X started getting more commercial success? What's that do as an artist? Because you guys are young and you had a, the punk vision but is it something different when all of a sudden you know, you're getting more commercial and you, you look in your audience with a bunch of copier salesmen. I mean, it's got to do something. Like, you got to be like, wait a second. We remember, I mean, what was that like when you started getting that up click to the, the commercial success? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it never was, uh, it, you know, we didn't hit any kind of billboard uh, fame or anything like that. Paul Westerberg always used to say when, when we because we, we played with them they opened for us every time we went to the midwest in i don't know like 81 82 83 something like that uh as we as we'd be going on stage you'd say knock them conscious because <laughs> as you get a bigger audience then people are just there they're either there like this you know with their arms crossed going like prove it they say you're big shit prove it it's like did you just pay, you know, 10 bucks to get in here to have a bad time? What is your fucking problem, man? Uh, but, you know, it's like you take the good with the bad. And, and I mean, that's the whole thing with entertainment. You know, it's like one night you're on top and you're playing a nice place. The next night there's, you know, 110 people there and it's cold and it's a fucking black box. And you're going like, oh, my God. So many, so many people Why? don't. So many people don't understand that. This goes back to when I did comedy. I remember I played in an Atlantic City casino in a comedy club. It was great. I was in the opener, but it was great. And then yeah. a week later, I'm staying in a converted trailer in Erie, Pennsylvania. So and people think it's all like beautiful lights. And I still remember sitting there driving, and I go, "Wait, this this, this is where I'm staying? Is there even a lock on the door? Like, is someone gonna axe murder me?" And and people don't get that that there are so many ups oh, yeah. and downs in entertainment. They just think, "Oh yeah, yeah. you know, John's an ex. Well, you know, they, he lives in a mansion." And people just don't oh, get God. it. Oh God, no, no. And and it's a good thing. <laughs> so so what what led to your band? If, what, if anybody knew. Then they just think, oh, that poor, stupid son of a bitch. What is he, what are they thinking? What? That's the worst. What, what, but, what, what was the, uh, how did your first hiatus come about from the band? What happened? Oh, uh, well, Billy, uh, Billy just kind of got disillusioned. I mean, we had made four really great records with Raymond Zarek, and that was, you know, that was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful time. Um, then we made a record with 
with Michael Wagner, who had worked with like the Scorpions and some heavy metal stuff. And that was that was not great. I mean, it, it, it really sucked a, a bit of life out of our um, recording process. And Exane and I were splitting up and we, you know, probably charted the best of, of anything with that song, um, Burning House of Love. But we were, you know, we were on a, a bit of a hamster wheel, uh, you know. We would make a record, we'd tour for, you know, three to four months out of the year, we'd go home and write another record. I mean, we put four records out in four years. And then Ain't Love Grand was the fifth record, that was probably a year and a half, and then it still didn't give us, you know, great, great success, so we just got burned out. Said, I'm, I'm done. Dave Alvin came in and played with us for a little while. Then Tony Gilkison joined, and Dave went on to do his own solo stuff. We made See How We Are. And and then um, another record, a uh, live record, and then we made a record called Hey Zeus, and <clears throat> X was just playing in bars, and it was, it was like we were more in some netherworld of are we doing, like, Americana kind of stuff? Are we doing indie rock stuff? Are we doing... We sort of lost the thread, I think. No. And and then and then Exane and I said, with some other help, you know, we should just play punk rock. Why don't we just play punk rock? Because that's what we're good at. And we came to Tony, Tony Gilkison, and said, you know what? We think we really need to just go back to playing more punk rock. You want to do that? And he said, actually, I don't. And so we said, okay, cool. We've done our thing. Fine. We're going to say, this is 90. Four, 95, some, maybe 95, and uh, 94, 95. And so Tony said, okay, fine, I'm, I'm out. And we said, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to just end the band, fine. And then in 98, uh, somebody approached Billy and said, do you want to do, do some more playing? And we were doing an anthology with Electra Records, which was kind of a best of. And... Uh, then in 99, we started playing again with Billy, and it was it was obviously good. So we've been playing ever since, playing live ever since. Now, how did the acting come about? You you have a, like, you look at your IMDb, you have, like, more credits than a lot of, you know, like, people go, oh, I'm an actor. You have a shitload of IMDb credits, and you were regular <laughs> on Roswell. I mean, yeah. how, how did the, did, was acting ever in your mind when you were playing with X, or was it just something Never. that... I mean, how did this happen? Because it, it fascinates me. There was a there was an agent who was uh, you know a theatrical agent in the agency that that booked X, and she had done stuff with uh, David Bowie, and she had done uh, that other guy David Essex. He, she had gotten him some movie parts, and you know, but but the first person who her name was Maggie Abbott, and I give her credit for that. She got me the part in in that movie uh, Salvador with James Woods and uh, Jim Belushi. Um, but the first person who who uh, got me in a movie was Alison Anders, the indie director. And she did a movie called Border Radio. And, and that, just a few years ago, got accepted into the Criterion collection. And it's a good movie. It looks really beautiful. It's in black and white. And so... What happened? They just said, you want to act? And did you take classes? Yeah. Or did you just feel like as a natural because you've been on yeah, stage? You know, yeah, I, I kind of bullshitted my way through the first few. <laughs> and then I, I did a movie called Slam Dance with Harry Dean Stanton. And uh, I was doing, we both played cops. And uh, like homicide cops. And uh, I was doing scenes with Harry Dean. And I was like so out of my depth. I w he was so much better than me, and I was thinking, "Oh fuck, this is this is embarrassing, this is horrible." <laughs> and then I did some uh, improv and some scene study, and uh, yeah, I did a couple of classes. Now you were in Roadhouse. Oh yes. Tell me, tell me about Roadhouse because that's that's a comic like oh that's God. a movie that everybody goes. You know, it's one of those movies that no one's going to go, I love Roadhouse, but when it's on, you don't change the station. You know, if you're having a few oh, beers and you go, No, oh. I don't know. There, there are several people that have come up to me and said, Oh my God, I love Roadhouse. And, <laughs> Tell I, me and, I think, and I think 
well, you are very in touch with your 13 or 14 year old spell. Because it's usually motherfucking guys that say, oh, I love Roadhouse. And of, like, of course you love Roadhouse because it's like dudes beating each other up and, and women in like skimpy outfits, you know? So yeah, you're a 13 year old right below the surface. Um, I just got cast, you know, I, I went in and auditioned and uh, the director, Rowdy Harrington, liked the way that I, you know, clutched my eyeball or whatever and screamed and fell to my knees <laughs> now, <laughs> in the audition. Now, did, did people and know it you was were... Such a, it was such a fucking riot because it was like the... It was actually the first... Hold on, i got to turn my phone off before somebody interrupts us. Uh, it was actually the first movie that Joel Silver did that bombed. It did really badly at the box office, and because uh, nobody wanted to see Patrick Swayze as a badass, they wanted to see Patrick Swayze as the you know El Romantico, right? Uh, you know, and uh, you know now it's like a fucking cult movie, but I'll tell you, it was like the most expensive B movie ever made. You know, Kelly Lynch is awesome in it. Um, you know, Ben Gazzara was just chewing up the scenery, being a villain and you know it was great it was, it was like you're gonna spend how much money on this you're gonna build an entire auto showroom just to have a monster truck drive through it and crush cars cool <laughs> can i watch yes i will be there i wasn't even in that scene and i was there now, did, did people know when you would go on audition, did you say, did you go as John Doe and then they would know you're from Exeter? Did you go with another name or did they say, oh, wow, that's, the, I mean, there's got to be some directors that said, oh, I, I fucking love X. I want John Doe in my movie. I mean, I yeah. mean how did that work for uh, you? A, a, a little bit, a little bit more nowadays, not, not so much then. I mean, there was a couple of times where it was very awkward, where it was like, obviously they had already cast the part, but someone just wanted to meet me. That was weird. It's like, you know, hey, can we take a picture? And I was like, sure. You want to give me the part and then we'll take a picture? <laughs> or, you know, or are you just like yanking my chain? Because you just want to like take, and say, hey, man, you want to tell your friends like over dinner that you got to hang out with John Doe? <clears throat> um, yeah, I would always go in as myself. And some people, you know, in the early days, nobody really knew who X was. And I think that's to our advantage at this point. Because we're still in that weird place where someone either says, you changed my life, or I don't know who the hell you are. And I'd much rather be there than be, you know, like part of Flock of Seagulls where you had one hit and that's it. Much rather be in the place where you still are legitimate and, you know, you did, you actually did something for somebody culturally. Now, Roswell, you were recurring. You were, you were in 19 episodes. Yep. Was that, yes. and I hear so many times with actors, because I also interview a lot of actors, a lot of them go, oh, we went in for like one one day, and then all of a sudden yes. they kept calling us back. What was your experience with Roswell? Uh, well, I it, it was a guy named David Nutter who went on to do a lot. Of, I think he was even part of Game of Thrones. He was the kind of sh showrunner. And I auditioned for to be the sheriff, and then they gave that to another guy, William. Uh, I can't William Sadler. Sadler, yes, Bill Sadler. And um, but they asked me if I wanted to play the dad, you know, uh, Sherry Appleby's dad. And I said absolutely. But what was what was really difficult about that is because you weren't a regular on the show, so so you didn't have like. You know, these are all the episodes you're going to you're going to be in. They would just call you like a week or two before and say, hey, you're in this episode and these are the days you're going to work. And it's like, I'm on motherfucking tour. I can't, you know, so you always had to be, you know, kind of that was that was hard. But um, it was a great, great experience because they shot on the um, they shot on the Paramount lot. So you had to you got to go through the same fucking gate that they used for you know uh sunset boulevard and and there were all these ghosts and oh my god that was so that was a yeah that was awesome 
Now, you, you don't really act that much anymore? Is it just because you've been busy? Or, or I mean, I know you've worked through, since that show, but, like, lately, it's like, if you look up your thing, yeah. I mean, what happened? You just don't have the time or you don't have the energy? or? Uh, well, I don't have, I, I mean, I've, I've aged out of a lot of parts. Um, but I, I, do, I did do one movie before lockdown that we're still trying to find a distributor for. And um, this friend of mine in, in St. Augustine, Florida, said, I'm going to do a remake, a remake of DOA, the 1949 film with Edmund O'Brien, and you're going to be the guy. And I said, Kurt, that's a great idea. I'm in. Great. Let's do it. And figuring, like, he was drunk and I was drunk, and uh, we'd never <laughs> talk about it again. And then six months later, Kurt would call me up and say, dude, we're going to do this fucking movie, and I'm writing the script. And it's like, cool. And then eventually it happened and we made it on like he financed the whole thing i got a friend of mine whose favorite who's a, a legit screenwriter to do a, a real treatment on the script and it's all done we're looking for a computer uh for a distributor to uh to put it out so that that's cool you know but i i just do stuff now that like people actually know what i can do and if i'm into it and uh but doa is going to be it, it looks beautiful, and it's all set in St. Augustine, so there's lots of Spanish moss, and it's like very creepy and goth, and it's all very film noir. There's like one fucking light bulb that lights up the whole scene, and it's it's pretty fun. Now, the thing, people don't, a lot of people may not know, that you've done a ton of solo albums. What was it like when you started recording solo albums? Because you were connected to X, that was your background. Was it yeah. hard for you to make that transition and to decide what angle you're going to go for the music where are you going to take it uh it was terrifying and and i i did it because somebody offered me a bunch of money to make a record on geffen i mean geffen records was kind of doing that in the late 80s you know and and you'd be a fool someone saying i'll give you all this money and you can do whatever you want and you say yeah and then you think what do i want to do and it it took me a, like probably six records six solo records to actually figure out what my sound was what i wanted to do um but geffen was doing that to a lot of people i mean stan ridgeway was on geffen uh peter case made a record on geffen and uh it was hard you know when when the sky's the limit and you can you can hire anybody you know it's like it's easier when you have you know no money and you have one guitar and you know three people that can play you know it's it's actually easier now how has your writing style changed throughout your years you're looking back you know it's you've been yeah. a successful musician for a long time and we all grow it's like you hear people tell stories i mean me what i do now i'm 58 i hang out with my wife on a you know on a saturday night we'll watch tv you know 15 <laughs> years ago when i was in la i'd be at the bar every night belting beers back i mean you change and your whole attitude changed how yeah. has your what increments has your writing style gone and do you feel it changing are you getting more uh, more having more self-awareness about your writing uh yes more self-aware in general much more um intuitive and uh much more open and i think that's a as a if i could tell my you know people i say what would you tell yourself uh you know 20 years ago uh is to to be more open to get rid of my fucking ego because your ego really doesn't do you any good it does you no favors and your brain is probably not your friend your intuition if you can feel something in here and you know that that's right, do that. But you can justify anything and you can be talked into a lot of things that you regret later, you know, artistically. Like, all oh, this part is really cool because of this and this and this and this, but you know inside, it's like, oh, I don't really like that part, right? But then you go ahead and you include that part on the record and then six months or six years later, you go, I still fucking hate that part. That's a bullshit part. I never should. So the way it's changed is I'm a lot more economical. I mean, this whole new record, uh, Fables, is all, it was all done live. 
It was all created on the on a back porch. It was it's real, you know. And I think one of the reasons is because aren't we all kind of sick of shit being virtual and being you know detached and electronically like at a arm's length, you know? I want to be I want to be in there. Now, now you you mentioned that you know something you were, you you would regret. Is there a, a prime example that comes to you of something that you really regret that you recorded or did that you sit there and still go, holy shit, why'd I do that? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Ain't Love Graham, the the record we did with Michael Wagner, uh, is way overproduced. And my first solo record is way overproduced, the Meet John Doe record. It's got some good songs on it, but there's just way too much shit on it. It's like more is better. No, more is not better. And with Michael Wagner, we, we charted out like every drum fill, every guitar lick. We had demoed it, and we had actually made the record, but it just didn't sound very good. And then we went in and did it for real, and it was, it's very lifeless. And, and that was a time when Exene and I were splitting up and it was very personal kind of songs. So I just don't listen to it. I just like pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> when in doubt, pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> now, <laughs> Stuff now, it under the rug. <laughs> now, what's it like when you guys play together now? Because it's been such a long time. And you think back, and I always yeah. talk to people who've been around, and, you know, there's people who are coming to your shows that, you know, had their grandkids during your first show. You know what I mean? Like, it, there's these things, you know. It's, they're bringing, they're bringing yeah. their grandkids. What's that like though, when you guys hit the stage together? Because you've been on stage a lot, but you have taken hiatuses. What's yeah. it like? Is it, do you, do you still have that spark? Is it something that, you know, I mean. Absolutely. And, and whenever we don't have, whenever we stop having that spark, uh, I will quit. And, and we'll know and we'll just say, okay, it's been good. But I mean, even though Exene and I split, even though Billy left and came back, it's like family. <laughs> Steve, you know, families are complicated, right? And you don't see eye to eye on everything, but then you realize that there's uh, something creatively more important. Now you're going to go on tour by your, uh, with your trio. What yes. do people? What can people expect? Do you play any X songs in that, or is it all solo stuff? What is a set oh, yeah. for you? No, I play I play X stuff, uh, but it's ones that I can get away with. I'll play like Burning House of Love and the New World and Poor Girl, and you know I, I'll, I'll ask for um, you know requests, and people say play Los Angeles, and it's like, really, you want to hear Los Angeles on an acoustic guitar? I think you're <laughs> going to be disappointed. I think you're going to actually think, yeah, that's not such a good song anyway. I don't know why I like that song anyhow. But, um, yeah, play older X songs. I do cover songs. Um, I, I just recently started doing a version of uh, Everybody's Talking, the Harry Nilsson, Fred Neal song uh, that Harry Dean Stanton sang in uh, Paris, Texas. It's this really ancient <laughs> Mexican folk song. And Harry Dean taught me that song, and when he passed away, I thought, you know what, to honor Harry Dean, I'm going to start singing this song again. It's called Cancio Mixteca, and uh, Harry Dean said that he, uh, you know the actor Pernell Roberts? He was yeah. in Bonanza, right? He, he, was, uh, so, he was Trapper John in the yes, series. Yes, right. Uh, so he was also with Harry Dean in that Pasadena Playhouse uh, acting group. And when Harry Dean moved from Kentucky out to L.A., Bernal Roberts and him, you know, and Warren Oates and all those other nutcases uh, would hang out. And Pernell Roberts said to Harry Dean, as Harry Dean told me, uh, here's the deal, man. you got to learn how to sing some Mexican folk songs because you'll get laid. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Harry Dean did, and it turns out that it worked. Evidently, I didn't. I didn't learn them in order to get laid because I'm very happily uh, partnered up. And uh, but I did relearn that song, Cancio Mixteca. So I, I do a, a bunch of different stuff, and it's even. I think it's selfish to just do new material. So I, you know, I'll throw in like five or six out of twenty songs that are new. I have one final question for you. 
you know, yes, sir. you were, when you were the X, you know, Xene was more the front person. Now it's you. <laughs> how did you adjust and learn how to be the front man? Because you're the front mm. man now is, and it's gotta be hard in the beginning, but you, as you mature and you get more comfortable in your skin, it must be easier, but just give me the progression yeah. of how that happened. And are you comfortable now still at this point? Uh, you know what? Uh, yes, I'm more comfortable. And uh, X is also going on tour this summer. We're doing a big tour with the Psychedelic Furs, and it's we've done, we played with them in the past, and it's awesome. So I always have my like day job, my 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 real job, playing with X, and and I love that. Um, uh, but. With the trio, we just played a, a show at a theater, like 300-seat theater in Austin, and I found another level. I found another level of, like, I could give Johnny Cash a run for his money because I feel, like, totally at home, and I'm really connected to this material, and I'm, I'm just singing from, like, deep inside, and, and I'm totally vulnerable, and I'm, I'm living the stuff that I'm singing about. And I'm not just, you know, giving a performance, I'm actually there. And, and that's, you know, something that, like, you learn as you get older, you know, that like, okay, I think it is better to be a vulnerable person in my regular interactions with people. And not to come at it from, from some, like, forward kind of, thing i i want to sit back and listen and i want to you know i want to be the yeah i, I want to learn stuff rather than just kind of be a be a bully or be a boss man and stuff like that well i want to thank you for taking the time today john uh people go to john's website the john it's also the band it's x the get his new album it's uh, Fables in the Foreign Land. It comes out May 20th. Uh, if you see they're coming to your town, him solo, and I know we'll be in Philly June 14th, and X, go see them. And anything, uh, Twitter, John? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, same thing. Uh, I think it's V John Doe. Okay, so people, on Twitter. go follow him. Go buy his album. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. <laughs> you can find over 900 episodes. Email me, Cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. Remember, I'm Steve yeah. Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.